This episode is brought to you by Rocklink Investment Partners. The team at Rocklink, as we all know them and love them, does not support a woke Marxist WEF friendly cancel culture worldview. And they've created the Kokomo Fund. In light of bank accounts being seized and frozen during the Emergencies Act, or its former truer name, the War Measures Act, Rocklink can help you move your investments overseas based on in the Cayman Islands, the world's number one offshore market for investment funds. Give the freedom lovers at Rocklink a call, as many of our staff have, at 905-631-5462, or send them an email at info at rocklink.com. That's info at rocklink with a C dot com. The term economy, you probably uh, know, probably know that it's a it's a compound word. It's a been anglicized, but it's oikos nomos, which means house law. And what a household, uh, you know, was engaged in in the pre-modern period, prior to the Industrial Revolution, was uh, basically all the stuff that needed to be done to survive. <laughs> so yeah. everything. Michael Thiessen here and today I get to interview C.R. Wiley and Chris it's great to have you on the show and both of us are passionate about the family Uh, on my podcast we've been talking a lot about the abortion issue of course uh, in the last number of weeks and I'm looking forward to this dialogue kind of being more positive in the sense not that we're not thinking critically about negative issues, but that we're more giving a vision for the home rather than just talking about the destructive nature of abortion. So it's great to have you on. Thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for having me, Michael. I'm glad to be with you. And both you and I uh, podcast on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Uh, right. How long did it take you to be able to distinguish the three words quickly, as you said, fight, laugh, feast together (laughs) and explain that to other people. Yeah. I don't know if I ever really uh, thought about that. Um, Sometimes I just, I refer to it FLF or fight, laugh, feast, but yeah, it's great to be connected with those guys. Um, It was uh, Gabe that uh, talked to me early on about bringing our little podcast on that network. And it's been a great, Uh, place to be. I'm glad to be there with you. Yeah, it is a great place to be. Okay. So, um, I want to talk, the listeners of my podcast are really interested in concepts of liberty. They're interested in concepts of freedom, particularly because of what we've been going through over the last two years, uh, up here in Canada. And I know you've been going through the same thing in the U S Um, Specifically, a lot of people have a hard time understanding why we would even be fighting for freedom. Doesn't that sound like a selfish thing, putting my rights before other people's uh, vulnerability? And so I've heard a podcast that you did with Doug Wilson, and I really appreciated some of the things you guys had to say. If I were to ask you the question, what is freedom for? Where would you, where would you start thinking? What 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 line of discourse would you start going down? Well, freedom uh, serves God. I mean, it's intended to be exercised in a way that glorifies God, uh, and is uh, only truly uh, you know uh, the case when it's in accord with the truth. So, a freedom that uh, fails to you know, uh, be exercised in accordance with the truth is just slavery uh, by another, you know, just a, in another way or another name or by another name. Um, so when we think about, you know, what, what it means to be a human being, there are things that obviously kind of pull us in different directions as human beings. You know, uh, there are our passions, which can be self-destructive. Uh, there is uh, the life of the of the mind, which sometimes can, you know, cascade down unprofitable and self-destructive paths. But uh, properly understood, freedom is is the exercise of of 
you know, human volition in the service of things that are truly good and uh, beautiful and honorable and in accordance with basically the full picture of God's creation. And so, you know, all of those things have to be kept in mind. If, if we endeavor to create a society that precludes the possibility of a person choosing the right thing and just essentially, uh, you know, puts them in a position where they don't really have a choice any longer. They just, maybe the only choice they have is to just go along with things that other people have de determined for them to do. The, the, there's a, there's a, there's a violation in the process of that person's dignity and uh, full exercise of the, of the image of God and the humanity that person possesses in the service of the truth. So it's not just a matter of what is the end, but how you get to the end, it has to be kept in mind. And when we have, you know, that full picture that it's not just, you know, the final outcome that matters, but how we get there, then people choosing the right thing is part of the picture. Uh, they have to choose it um, freely. Now, obviously, there are situations where people misuse the powers that they have, the you know, of volition, and, you know, commit crimes and harm other people. And, and in those cases, we have laws to restrain that kind of behavior. But uh, generally speaking, in, in sort of the ideal uh, or scenario, you've got people who are choosing what's right. I like it how you both include the the end and the and the journey to getting to the end. I think it's really important when we talk about matters of conscience and we talk about matters of uh, uh, individual association or the freedom of association and those types of things. If, if we're pursuing truth, then let's let's talk about some of the things that are true about the home that when we would say I am I am free and I'm free for, you know, filling in the blank. I am free for my home too. what are some what are some ways that you would fill in that blank that you think are vitally important for Christians to recapture a vision of? Well, there's something about the scale of a household that uh, makes it unique um, in relationship to other institutions in society. Uh, generally speaking, households are places where a person can uh, display love and uh, loyalty and uh, serve the other members of the household personally. Uh, there's a kind of regard that members of a household have for each other that's that's personal, not impersonal. When you get to, you know, uh, the scenarios in which you're dealing with very large institutions, say universities or governments, even governments at a at a local level, you're dealing with a whole set of impersonal you know, relations that uh, you are engaged in, which can still be, you know, great in the sense that they're important. Uh, you know, those relationships are, are uh, needed for, you know, a community to or an institution to do its work. But in a household, you've got this interpersonal dynamic. And it's also a place in which people uh, have their first encounter uh, with authority. And ideally, uh, a father and a mother who uh, are, in, are themselves uh, in submission to God's authority. And so a child in a setting like that learns something about authority that's important to know, and that is authority should be exercised for the benefit of the people uh, over whom it's being exercised. And it uh, should uh, be uh, exercised in a way that helps to, to develop uh, the person's uh, you know, gifts and uh, put that person's uh, gifts uh, to, to good use in the household, but even beyond the household as that person is as a child and then later as a young adult uh, is prepared to enter into the more public sphere uh, of the, sort of the world outside the home. So uh, a, a household ought to be free to order its affairs with those ends in mind. And when you have uh, external authorities that attempt to either circumvent the authority of parents or micromanage what's going on inside a home, um, you end up 
with a situation where um, the the ability of the home to to be what it's in, it's supposed to be is is in some sense compromised or qualified in ways that potentially could be very damaging. Um, you know, we think about totalitarian um, uh, societies where, uh, because of the intrusive character of the state, uh, children are are encouraged to spy on their own parents, or parents are simply seen as being, uh, you know, sort of extensions of the, the all-knowing and ever-present state. And when you have that kind of a, a scenario develop, then the, the integrity of households are compromised and uh, they just become just tools in the hands of uh, really uh, potentially dangerous uh, individuals and institutions. So I don't know if that I kind of ramble a bit there, but I don't. I hope hopefully I've gotten to something that responds or answers the question. No, I, I appreciate that, Chris. I, I want, the few things that came up in my mind when you're kind of talking on this more disciplinary, um, this you know disciplinary uh, roadway, you know, uh, freedom to catechize, freedom to educate, freedom to discipline, thinking about. Um, I know that for us up here, when the churches were continuously asked to close and um, many, many did close. I remember one of one of my closer friends during that journey as we were remaining open actually confronted uh, one of the local police officers uh, and the health unit saying, I have a religious duty to my children to pass on the um, the habit of celebrating the Lord's Day. Like, this is according to my scriptures. This is according to my conscience. And you, with this petty little mandate about, you know, not allowing me, a 50-year-old father, to be able to discern whether or not it's healthy and safe for my children to go to church, you are not only just, you know— overriding my own sense of urgency, you are outright offending uh, my freedom of religion. And you may or may not, you know, and he went on and I, I actually saw the note that he read to them, you know, talking about, you know, you very, very well may affect a pattern of behavior that I have worked diligently for years to instill upon my children. Uh, I don't think enough Christians think about those type of small amounts of of creep, you know, here in Canada, we do not have any, any type of really, um, educational choice when it comes down to our taxpayer dollars. You know, I, I homeschool my children and if I spend $3,000 in their curriculum and tutors and, uh, you know, working cooperatively with other parents, there's, I, I don't get to point my taxpayer dollars anywhere, but to the public system. And these are constant attacks on, the discipleship of the home. And so I actually appreciate that you started down uh, this, I think, maybe more familiar road, even though many people are not thinking critically about it. I was kind of hoping that you would venture into the world of the home being free to be a productive economy. Oh, yeah. And so maybe what if you have any thoughts to wrap up the discipleship area, uh, feel free to you know transition the your thoughts as you wish, but I would love to hear you talk about you know I've heard you talk about um, you know uh, the the household as a productive institution, and uh, I'd love to love to have you comment on that. Yeah, well, historically, that's the thing that was kind of at the, the heart of it. Um, every household was a working concern. Um, the term economy. You probably uh, know, probably know that it's a it's a compound word. It's a, been anglicized, but it's oikos nomos, which means house law. And what a household, uh, you know, was engaged in in the pre-modern period, prior to the Industrial Revolution, was uh, basically all the stuff that needed to be done to survive. <laughs> so yeah. everything uh, was was. Uh, you know, uh, sort of a labor of uh, concern or concern of the household and its productive a activity. You know, I think the family farm comes to mind for many people, and that's certainly a good place to start. But it didn't end there. 
Uh, we have many uh, surnames in our society today that help us to see that uh, there were different, um, you know, vocations that were being pursued by different households, you know, Baker, for example, or Smith or what have you. So um, everybody in a household was engaged in a, in a, in a, in a common enterprise. You know, as I mentioned, farming is easy to, to keep in mind or to sort of uh, visualize. But that meant that uh, households weren't places that you retreated to at the end of the day to get away from work. Uh, work was right outside. It was right downstairs. It was in the back room. It was something that was, um, you know, uh, ever present. And people didn't organize their lives so much uh, spatially, although there was some of that, as uh, they did temp temporally, sort of chronologically. So you know, rest obviously is important, but the way folks in the past thought about rest was more uh, along the lines of certain times being set aside for rest and recreation. Um, primarily because the work was always right there <laughs> in front of you. You could just work yourself to death and never stop. Uh, so uh, households also uh, consequently worked together. There was a, there was a need for uh, a head of house because if there was no, no head of house, there would be no one who was sort of overseeing and directing the work. And husbands and wives were joint, you know, had joint tenancy. They, they were co-owners. But generally speaking, uh, in antiquity and even into the early modern period, a father's task was to oversee the, the work and the mother's task was to sort of uh, oversee the sort of the internal operations, particularly as they related to the to the children and how the children were employed in the in the family concern. But those those are the things that come to mind for me anyway, when I think about the nature of the household economy. When we unpack this idea, it, then, you know, a number of things become very vital uh, freedom to go and work six days a week and rest on the seventh, you know, uh, freedom, uh, for the household to be able to, um, sell and market, you know, share, uh, the, the production of the home becomes incredibly important. And so whenever you would have an infringement upon that, in that context, you would think that that would be incredibly difficult. I, I do actually think that we see this a lot in immigrant families today in North America, where oh, yeah. we're still seeing an incredible amount of uh, family uh, ingenuity and, and family cooperation, um, pr probably a good model for all of us to, to, to go back to. I know that within the homeschooling world, um, one of the benefits of homeschooling is yeah, I can, I can remember, you know, Kevin Swanson lecture years and years ago, just talking about, you know, if you have a, you have a, if you have a bored boy who's pent up and needs to get some energy out, just tell him how to count by digging holes. You know, I can't remember the exact reference, but you know, put him to work and teach him as you go. And uh, we've certainly experienced the benefit of that. Um, so I'd like to see the family return to this type of concept. I think many people would say to to you and I, though, well, in our modern context, uh, you know, where there's not as much agricultural labor needed, um, th that that could present difficulties. What, what would you say about that? Like, it's it's one thing to say, here's a historical reference. It's another thing to say. According to that historical reference, this might be good for the family to return to this. And I know that you've taught on this in the past and I've taught in the, in the past because this is all linked up with the cultural mandate to cultivate. So the idea of production really is embedded in a biblical worldview. So the family producing is not just a historical observation. It, it truly is uh, a compelling vision for the home. Uh, what would you say to the person who says, I don't think we can go back to that or we shouldn't go back to that? Well, I would say that uh, they have it partly right. There are certain things we, we won't uh, go back to. Um, subsistence farming for the majority of the population, at least uh, in the immediate future. Maybe we'll get back there someday. <laughs> it depends <laughs> on how much Klaus Schwab has to do with the, with the future <laughs> world right. economics. But. Right, right. Well, 
Yeah, I mean that's a whole other conversation. But but yeah, yeah. I think that the the practical uh, you know sort of task of how do we make this work is a is a uh, a valid concern. And I do th- I do think we need to be thoughtful and creative uh, as we go about the, uh, you know thinking this through. I guess uh, one of the things that is important to keep in mind is that people for time out of mind have known that there's a direct connection between the development of a young person in uh, sort of habits that are virtuous and work. So even after, uh, you know, uh, the farm was left behind and the, and the cottage industries were, you know, uh, sort of pushed out of business by large factories and all that kind of stuff, people tried to find ways to put kids to work. Uh, and there would be chores and different things like that. Um, the problem with a lot of the, those efforts is that the, it, the kid knows that it's sort of make work and there's no real sense that it ties into the, to the real prosperity of the, of the household. Whereas in the past, uh, when a father said to his son, go out in the back 40 and bring in the cattle uh, or the cows, uh, and he said, no, I'm not going to do it. And then the father would say, well, if you don't, then you know, they're going to freeze tonight in the this blizzard that's on its way or whatever. The kid understood the direct connection between uh, what he did and the, the welfare of a household. Whereas when a, when a mom says, you know, uh, make your bed and the kid says, well, I don't care if I have a messy bed or a messy bedroom, what difference does it make? Um, then it becomes a more, di- it's more difficult to, to justify the, the, uh, the task, you know, Oftentimes, parents have to resort to, you know, do it just because I said so, which is okay. But if you play that card one too many times, uh, I think that eventually the kid says, well, I don't see how this makes any difference in in the larger scheme of things. But if you have real productive uh, or if you have real productive activity in the household and you can tie a kid into that activity early, uh, then it's really helpful. So you can do a lot of things. Um, So. When you think about, you know, what, what, you know, you could do, I think you can break things down into like two categories, subsistence activities or subsistence economy kinds of things, and then things that are uh, done for the market. And there's always going to be a plenty of, uh, of, of, you know, plenty of things to keep you busy in the subsistence economy, particularly if you've got, you know, sub, you know, children, uh, multiple children, or if you have, uh, you know, grandparents nearby, um, or just things around the house that need to be done that are genuinely, you know, uh, useful to have done. So there, there's that stuff. But then the stuff that's uh, more market-oriented, if you have uh, things along that line, some, sometimes the challenge has to do with the nature of the work. So, you know, at my church, the church I serve, I've got different entrepreneurs in the congregation. Uh, one of them has a software company. And... Uh, you're not going to get your, you know, your, your four or five year old kid helping you with spreadsheets or something like that. (laughs) Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, there are, you know, are more hands-on sorts of things that, uh, you know, a kid could get involved with, if you've got say, you know, large garden, you've got some livestock, that kind of thing. So in in this particular case that I'm thinking of, um, one of my elders owns, this software company and he employs a number of people in the church and just about all of them uh, work from home. They have a virtual kind of business uh, that's, you know, it's possible for them to conduct it entirely online. It does, you know, it's got about 25 employees and, and does millions of dollars worth of business every year. But each of them have a fairly large sort of uh, property. Each of the people I know of in the, in my church. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, agricultural activity that's going on at the same time in those homes. So the kids are involved with that stuff. So even though dad is, you know, on a Zoom call with people from three different countries, uh, his wife is out in the big garden out back working with the chickens and bringing in the the onions (laughs) with four or five little kids, that kind of thing. So anyway, I've, I've just kind of rambled a bit, but, but it is a challenge. You have to, you have to think, think this thing through in my own case, uh, I have uh, investment real estate, and so my boys would help me on the investment real estate. And I, and I, you know, was able to acquire 
uh, a number of properties over the years. And I did that while I was a pastor and a college professor even. But my kids, my boys in particular, uh, were working with me on those those uh, properties a lot. You know, for us, um, it's this uh, trying to give the church, the greater church, a vision to help the, the, the home. And so, uh, you know, we've got individuals who, you know, for example, one 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 gentleman is a framer. And I don't know how many young men in our church he's trained uh, in, 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 and broadly in the community uh, where they come under him and, and they work with him and, and he works really fantastically with parents. And, um, you know, again, depending on the model of education that you create, if, if you create a model of education that your children have more free time to work rather than just being at the books all day long, you know, uh, we, we, we partnered with a local tortilla factory, uh, to just get, my, uh, my second son working. And, um, I think that what people need to connect that to is that that wealth that they generate rate outside the home is still a, a beautiful gift to the home. If, if you're all working together. So my, my eldest boys have both taken money that they've earned outside of the home to contribute to any type of future schooling or to the purchase of their own home. And we, we invest the money together and uh, it, it is a way for us to continue to generate wealth that will benefit them in the future. And so I think there's tons of ways of being creative. The, the, the few commitments people have to make would be having a, an appropriate educational paradigm that would allow your students to do it. And then also just parents take being actively involved in the oversight of the process. You know, my, my kids didn't work for employers that, that ran all of the shots. They, they worked, they, they work for employers that were willing to uh, agree to, you know, not working on Sundays, uh, a certain schedule. Um, if I had any particular issues with the content that my children were enduring, uh, I could management knew that they would be getting a call from me to go over what's been happening. So uh, I think there's a real, I, I, I think this is an important topic and there's a real opportunity for families to relearn these habits because of course the alternative is just to keep uh, falling further and further into debt for, for the family to become, uh, less productive. Um, you know, we've got concepts of property owning, you know, uh, I, I, Chris, you've gotten into the idea of real property owning. I'd like you to unpack that if you would. Uh, but all of these things are under threat right now as, you know, both, both children don't work until a later time, until all of their education is done and the, you know, the radical individualism of the family, not working together at these younger ages, uh, at these younger stages. So, um, right. I think it's a real threat to actual owning of property I, here in Canada, you know, our housing market in combination with just the rise of the cost of living and everything, we are likely to see a generation right now that will not own homes. Uh, it's right. a, it's a real problem. Yeah. There are a number of things that are in play with that particular problem. Uh, lots of capital coming in from outside our countries, uh, inflating markets and pricing things out of reach. And then large corporations that are just buying up entire subdivisions and, um, again, making it impossible for a lot of folks to get into the market. But I think your, your comment about working with your kids is really a good, uh, thing to think about. Um, what, you know, I think was the case historically, uh, was a very strong collaborative effort between the gener generations to, to sort of keep the family concern moving forward. We've lost sight of that. You know, in, in my own case, uh, when I was working with my kids on our, our various, uh, properties, I've got a background in construction. So, you know, framing is a, you know, when you mentioned that your friend uh, or the, the person in your congregation is a framer, I, that's an that's a really an ideal uh, 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 sort of a means of employment for, to bring young men into because there's just a lot of things for them to do. Uh, you know, just like little kids collecting eggs, uh, you know, as soon as they can walk, you know, 
young men carrying lumber from place to place <laughs> it's a great thing absolutely it's just a good thing <laughs> that's right that's right but uh when it comes to this whole matter of working sort of uh together looking forward to what you described in terms of how you work with your kids is great when my sons uh in particular worked with me on our properties i i sometimes i paid them sometimes i didn't but i i you know let them know that the properties that we worked on created cash flow for the family and that that cash flow was going to help underwrite you know their college educations and, and so forth and so that and that was the case and then when it came time for them to, to you know uh get into home you know get into a home ownership for themselves, I was able to work with them on that. So I have two sons. They're both married. They both have uh, children um, and they both own their own homes. Um, and, but you know, that was, this was something that, um, you know, uh, was sort of the outworking of a pattern of working together that uh, had been, you know, in place for years and years. Okay. So I want to talk about, uh, I, an issue that is pretty, uh, pretty recent, right hot off the press. Uh, and this is the idea of student loan forgiveness. Oh yeah. Uh, obviously right. Biden has now announced that, uh, a, a whole plan for massive student loan forgiveness. And it's bringing up within the Twitter world, within the Facebook world, with just within families and, and, you know, everyone within the Christian church, the, uh, another debate that of course we haven't necessarily had in a long time. Um, and it's showing how socialistic so many Christians really are, uh, when it comes down to government coerced, uh, payment for other people's education. Um, I'm tipping my hat to kind of where I'm coming from on that issue. Uh, I'm happy for you to disagree and talk through it. But, you know, when we're talking about the home, when we're talking about home economy, how do you feel about this whole student loan forgiveness situation? Well, the, there are a number of problems with it. One of them is moral hazard. Uh, it creates a, uh, it sort of underwrites an outlook uh, that, encourages a kind of irresponsible approach to your uh, education at, at, at multiple levels, not just the financial level, but even at other levels in terms of the labor that you put into the education. There's a certain, there's a certain outlook I think a person has uh, with regard to education when he or she knows that this is really costing them a lot. And uh, now on the other on the other side of this, uh, we've had a kind of uh, inflation uh, that has been encouraged by the government, particularly through student loans, that has driven up the cost of education uh, across uh, you know the board. You know, I, I can't tell you. And I so my kids are all out of college now. And, but, you know, we, we went to a lot of schools and I can't tell you the number of climbing walls I've seen, you know, in student centers. And I've thought this this is basically uh, a resort uh, that we have here. And um, I can remember the good old days when I was in college, when we didn't have 35 different options when it came to what to eat for dinner. You know, in the student cafeteria, there was like the blue plate special. And if you don't like it, that's tough. <laughs> um and uh, education was a lot less expensive in those days. I, I you know, I, I worked my way through college. Um, I didn't entirely pay my own way through, through through the work that I performed, you know, when I was out of school. But things were manageable. And the student loans that I incurred by today's standards are laughable. Um, now, this is not entirely driven by, you know, the student loan uh kind of uh, financing that kind of underwrites lots of schools. But uh, schools could have done a lot more to keep their costs down. I'm on the board of a college, New St. Andrews College in Idaho. And uh, there, you know, we provide a world-class education. Uh, our graduates have gone on to study at places like Princeton and Oxford. Um, 
and uh, the cost of an education at New St. Andrews is about a quarter of what you you know pay at another another school, a comparable school. So, like for example, in the city of Mos Moscow, um, you know, there's New St. Andrews College, and then there's the you know um, University of Idaho, and New St. Andrews is ranked higher uh, academically than the state school, even though it's got you know a small fraction of the financial resources and facilities that are available there at the state school. So um, we've created this problem on one end, and now we're trying to solve it on the other hand by uh, forgiving debt. Problem is, is that this punishes uh, or at least makes people feel like they were fools for handling their affairs responsibly. You know, so I know a lot of people who uh, made real sacrifices in order to keep their student debt down um, and who worked long hours uh, and went without in order to pay off their student loan debts. Um, what, you know, this particular proposal uh, or this particular um, executive order, I think that's what it is, uh, presents us with is um, a situation in which those people uh, are made to look like fools, uh, you know, in terms of what would have been, you know, the better course of action. I'm not thinking morally, but just in terms of pragmatically, it would have been just to sort of allow yourself to be bailed out by the, by the government. So I think it, it sends the wrong message. I think there's an area here where we Christians need to talk again, maybe at a deeper level about charity and about, uh, um, well, charity probably would be summarize it all. You know, I, I see online, you know, I, you know, I kind of wade into the fray this morning on Twitter and you just see Christians battling back and forth between the concepts of debt cancellation and freedom. And um, this is probably another area where we really need to dig down and talk about the concepts of Jubilee and, and, and how the lending and, and borrowing practices leading up to debt forgiveness were, you know, would change, you know, where my prices for you, if I knew I was forgiving your debt next year, uh, would, would change, uh, versus if I, if you had 50 years to pay it off. And, um, because really, again, it, it seems to be just another way of buying votes. You know, that's the first thing that I thought. Oh, I, yeah. I just yeah. thought, oh, I, well, I guess, you know, raiding Mar-a-Lago didn't quite uh, have the desired <laughs> effect. Uh, we've got right. no other, you know, looming pandemic right. other than the green agenda, which that's going to be with us forever. Uh, we're, what could I do? Oh, me, I'm going to I'm going to going to pay loans. Um, yeah. And and yet I, I do empathize with some of the folks online who are saying, well, what does scripture talk about forgiveness and, and Christian charity? Of course, the, the most obvious uh, is that charity is chosen. So uh, we just went through a pretty audacious house closing in our area. And, uh, you know, people were saying to me, you know, I said, you know, we're going to take these people to court. We're going to, you know, we're going to, they, they will they will rectify their breach of the contract. And people say, well, what about forgiveness? And I would say, well, look, I'll, yeah, I, my wife and I will pray about forgiving them uh, and, and, and being lenient uh, once the courts have decided to be just, you know, but that's for us to decide. It's not for the courts to decide that I'm supposed to be lenient on their breach of contract. So this just seems to me to be state imposition and wealth distribution uh, and the same old players are trotted out, you know, that it that um, it, blacks and Hispanics are disproportionately poor. And therefore, this is to help those uh, in, in those uh, vulnerable ethnicities. Uh, do you have any quick responses to the whole, you know, the constant trotting out of these statistics that are brought forward, which would seem to guilt us into or you know arm twist us into saying okay yes i you know i i i like all of god's uh created order um so therefore you know i do want to take care of these individuals uh what, what, what do you have any initial thoughts to that well i think that 
you know, we can uh, think, I think, uh, more clearly about the success or the um, struggles of any particular ethnic group by kind of thinking about success stories. So are, do we have any success stories? And what were the factors that led to the success that we want to celebrate? Um, we have a wide range of, um, you know, people within ethnic communities that we can, that we can uh, go and talk to. Um, it's not as though there are no success stories to be found in certain places that we might assume uh, don't have success stories. And, and when we, you say it, success stories, you mean people who have done the responsible thing by working very, very hard, right. going to school and and learning from all of that hard work, benefiting from all of that hard work and 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 now being a contributing uh, member of society. Uh, you're not right. talking about the example of someone who went and had all of their debt paid for them and then turned right. around having an economic advantage over the other type of individual. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So one of the things about my book, Man of the House, uh, which is, uh, you know, a, a book that gets into the nuts and bolts of, of household e economics and kind of the way things were understood prior to the Industrial Revolution is uh, when, you know, you know, recent immigrants to the United States read that book, they tell me that's how they actually do things in their homes. <laughs> and that's how their ancestors did things. And they, they feel uh, like it vindicates, you know, the sort of their common sense of approach to, to the world. So I was at a church in New Jersey a couple years back, made up entirely of immigrants uh, in, in Jersey City. A uh, great pastor there named Sam Perez. He'd asked me to come and speak. And then after the after uh, Sunday morning service, I did a, a kind of a, a Sunday morning. You know, I, I preached on Sunday morning, and then I but I also had done a like a, a something in Sunday school. Um, Sam said to me, "I want to introduce you to the man of the house." And I thought, "Hey, cool. Let me let me meet this guy." And he said, "Yeah, this guy is the embodiment of everything you talk about in your, in your books." And I said, "Great." So he introduces me to a guy who owns a flooring company. Uh, he's from Mexico. He came to the United States, spoke no English, um, and now was a millionaire. His sons work in the business. He's got a home in Florida. He's got a home in New Jersey. He's done, done really well. But blue-collar sensibility. And I, as I talked to him and kind of dug into his story, it really was the case. This guy had his act together. Uh, and uh, had uh, succeeded uh, and did things the right way. And so I just said, you know, let me shake your hand, man. You are the man of the house. <laughs> so that's what I'm getting at. I mean, there are, plenty of, there are plenty of people out there like that. Those are the people that we need to, um, to valorize, to hold up uh, before other people and say, this is a great story. This is an inspirational story. This could be your story too. Um, you don't need to take, you know, the shortcut yeah, I'm all for trying to make things accessible. I'm all for trying to find ways to help people make that first step. Uh, but uh, the the really the, the thing that we really need to celebrate is um, the virtue that's on display uh, in a story like the one like the one I just told. And ultimately, it comes back to uh, again that you know I you know the tale of two students graduating from Gordon Conwell. You know one went into uh, kind of liberal academics and the other went over to the Acton Institute. And, you know, everybody wants to help people with the first step. Everybody wants to make things accessible. And the one liberal answer will always be, well, the elites will tell you how you ought to do it, gather your money up, and then we'll do it for you. And, and uh, the, the, I want to say reformers or the, or the church will always say, Hey, uh, individuals ought to be charitable individuals. Let them make the most amount of money that they possibly can as a household. Let them save it. Let them acquire uh, in, an investment portfolio and, and then teach them by God's word to be generous, charitable people. And, and um, you know, uh, I, I like to tell people that it's only one, one group there that has a middleman, uh, and that would be the, the liberal group that has the middleman. Uh, you know, you're basically doing charity without the middleman. So just go and do as God commands. 
Okay, this brings us to the last point that I want to talk about. It, something interesting in your in your man of the house talk that uh, that I heard you lecturing on, and you know, if this just ends up being boring for you and boring for other people, uh, I found it fascinating, and I kind of want you to unpack it. So, yeah, we talk about the piety or the religiosity of the pagan household, and how really within within traditional paganism. The only distinction between that and Christians is the declaration, Jesus is Lord. Now, again, when you said that, I did not think that that was a historical statement. Like, it, it was a historical statement. But I also just looked back and I said, like, you know, I do, I do premarital counseling for young adults uh, who are, you know, getting married. And the, one of the very first things we do, um, and admittedly, I steal this from a book that I don't wholeheartedly endorse the rest of the book. But, you know, what are your family commands? Like what what what, what commands do your does your family teach you from the time that you were little until now? And are you aware of those family commands? And then the second question is, is which one of those family commands is consistent with Scripture and you need to repeat in your household? And which one of those family commands are uh, in opposition to, to the word? And you need to, before you get married, start dealing with how you're not going to, you know, pass on those family commands. When you talked about the religiosity or the piety of the pagan home, I still believe that to be an, a, 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 a constant today, that every home has its own family commands, its own religiosity. And it really is truly the Christian home that still declares Jesus is Lord. Why do you think, this is my question for you. Why do you think that most people don't understand that today? Most people in the church. Yeah. Well, I think that the stress in uh, the pre-modern world was on your responsibilities. And that was the case outside the Christian community as well as in it. And uh, in the contemporary world, the stress is on personal fulfillment, uh, your your happiness. Uh, you know, you hear, you hear parents usually parents of children who are really in a bad spot, maybe uh, with regard to their sexual sort of uh, uh, issues, you know, they'll say, I just want, you know, fill in the blank to be happy as though um, sexual perversity is a means to happiness in, in the, in the best sense or the proper understanding of the, of the term happiness. Um, so I think that shift is part of the, the story. Um, and if, you know, our households are s established to uh, support the, the, the worship of ourselves, uh, then I think you're, you're exactly right. Our, our households in contemporary, the contemporary Western world are dedicated to the idol of, of the self. Um, and so consequently, you know, uh, duties are almost entirely downplayed and rights and personal fulfillment is played up. Now, at a practical level, that just wouldn't have worked in the ancient world uh, prior to, you know, the contemporary situation that we find ourselves in. Today, many, many households are just basically recreation centers with lots of, you know, uh, screens, uh, you know, either handheld devices or you know, screens on the wall, and then places where you just relax and eat and sleep and whatever. But in the past, when households were, you know, functional economies that, and they had to be productive in order for people to survive, there was an unapologetic stress on doing your, your duty to, you know, fulfill your responsibilities. And that's what piety in antiquity consisted of. Pius, uh, the Latin word that we get the English word piety from, just literally mean meant um, doing your duty. Um, it meant acknowledging your benefactors, uh, res you know, showing them due regard and respect, obviously parents, but also civil authorities, the ancestors, the gods, what have you. With Christianity, what we saw in the New Testament, particularly in the household codes, is the Apostle Paul endorsing the, the productive household, saying this is something we really need. It's, you know, if we don't have productive households, we're in a heap of trouble. But the, 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 the Lord of our households is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so every task, every responsibility in our households derives its 
meaning and its significance from him. Uh, so there's a practical side, obviously, uh, but there's also a, you could say, uh, uh, symbolic or metaphysical dimension to the household that is acknowledged in the way we, you know, uh, carry out our particular roles. That's, it's, particularly, it's, that's particularly evident in Ephesians. And, and I think the, the one thing that I am coming across time and time again is, you know, this concept of um, my, so if we take that, if we take the word piety and we just mean my duty, and then we apply that to the phrase, Jesus is Lord, you know, my duty in the household as husband, uh, the duty of a wife to serve uh, to, to serve her husband as to the Lord, uh, the the command in Colossians to do whatever I'm doing as to the Lord. Um, it becomes I, I think that in the church we've we've kind of made that a high like th these are the religious these are the religious duties that I have that have to do with Jesus, and then I have these physical duties that I have that really don't have to do with Him. When really the biblical worldview is is uh, a complete, you know, a com the, the lordship of Christ in all of these things. So whenever I am living in the home, <laughs> however I am behaving to whom I am behaving with, um, I'm doing that as to the Lord. And I think so many people have, you know, uh, you know, separated the idea that this, you know, these spiritual realities have very physical manifestations and these physical duties have very real spiritual ramifications. Uh, we're missing that point. And, you know, almost as you were describing that, I'm thinking, yeah, so many people walk around with this idea that, you know, Jesus is just in my, just in my knapsack and I bring him out when I'm doing my devotions and my reading and my praying and whatnot, but then I put him back in the knapsack and then I just, I treat my dad the way that I want to treat or or I go after sex the way that I want to. And so you're, there is this real battle between that idol of self. Um, and partly it's just a, it's partly, it's a, a lack of teaching in the church that Jesus is Lord of all. Yeah. I think that's a very important observation. I also think that we live in a time where the world has been, been divested of its spiritual significance Sometimes people will talk about it in the terms of uh, in terms of uh, uh, enchantment that the world has been disenchanted, that we've lost uh, our ability to see the glory of God, say in uh, the world around us. Now, sometimes people will say that they still can perceive the glory of God when they visit the Grand Canyon or the Niagara Falls or something, <laughs> but in just in terms of you know everyday uh, life, people I guess have kind of acquiesce to a kind of mundane everyday kind of sort of spiritlessness to just the stuff of life. But, uh, that wasn't the way people in the past thought about things. Uh, uh, was certainly wasn't the way Christians thought about things and it wasn't the way, uh, pagans thought about things. They, both pagans and Christians believed that the world was suffused with spiritual significance. What they disagreed about was who's on top. They didn't disagree that there was spiritual significance to everything. Now, today, because of certain developments in Western um, intellectual sort of you know, life, intellectual history, you know, rooted in the late Middle Ages, early, early modernity, we tend to think of the world as a big machine now. It's just like uh, this uh, mechanism that we can take apart and reassemble any way we please. Um, that's not even true, but that's the way we think about it. And uh, because that's the case, I, I do think that people think of their spiritual lives as being entirely inward. You know, Jesus lives in my heart. Uh, you know, he's sitting on the throne of my heart. They don't think of him as actually sitting on a throne, uh, you know, in heaven, overseeing and judging the nations. <laughs> that's, that's like a, a bridge too far for a lot of folks. In fact, some of those, sometimes, some, sometimes I run across people that almost think that these two ways of thinking are diametrically opposed to one another. That if you really love Jesus, then you can't think of him as the Lord of history. Or if he is the Lord of history, then you really can't have him in your heart. 
that's crazy. That's craziness. It's it's both. It's a both and situation. Absolutely. And in fact, I, you know, I think this is a dividing line of, of Christianity today, the, the dividing line of um, whether or not Jesus will be both and, you know, uh, I am thinking of the of uh, the word that uh, we come across so often uh, in our liturgy, and that is the idea of transcend the transcendency of God. That He He transcends His reign transcends the world, the universe, and that means both my mind and in my heart, and it also means my hands and my feet and um, you know my laptop and uh, this idea that the Lord is in control of all. And it's ironic that it. It's not ironic. It, it's telling how much of a heresy secular reasoning mixed with this, you know, psychological worship of the self has um, underscored or or laid the laid the foundation for much of the church to become apostate and really believe uh, these doctrines that are not found in scripture coming from like these, these, these secularists. Um, that's partly why I've been so concerned about all of the things we're seeing right now in our time, because, you know, I look back on, you know, in Canada, the United church of Canada for, for years. And you just look back and, and I feel like I hear my evangelical friends saying the same thing that I might hear someone from, um, Oh, I'm trying to think of the denomination in the U S that's the, the, it's not Anglican proper. Uh, what is it? The Episcopal church. Yeah. The Episcopal church. Like I'm starting to see hear evangelicals talk in the similar manner that I've heard the Episcopal church talk for the last 20 years. And it's this yeah. constant drift towards self idolatry. Yeah. I think that's, that, that's a, that's correct. I think that, uh, evangelicalism is, um, at a very, uh, I think, um, auspicious moment uh, in the sense that um, things could break either way. Um, there's some there's some break that's going to occur, um, and I think uh, you know your comment about you know having seen this movie before. That's kind of the way I put it. You know, it's 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 sort of the thing that I see as well. This is like deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berry would say. <laughs> Just this this idea that uh, can't we learn from the mistakes of other people and other other institutions? Must we make the same stupid moves all you know you know over and over again? Maybe the thing that distinguishes the evangelical kind of approach is um, it's I guess maybe. Uh, Gnostic character. I, I, I remember a few years back, there was a book entitled Against the Protestant Gnostics. I don't know if you recall that book. I don't remember the guy who wrote it. But I do think that um, this inwardness that we see within evangelicalism, uh, while it has a good side, uh, it also has a tendency to slip into Gnosticism. And we live in a time where I think uh, we are seeing a kind of techno-Gnosticism. Um, where we basically think about the universe mechanistically and that we bring meaning to the world from the deep inner, you know, mysterious uh, sort of unknowable depths of our own selves. The, the, gurgles, <laughs> the gurgles of our bowels. <laughs> That's right. Right. And uh, consequently, you know, no one can judge anybody else's inner voice, you know, um, because, you know, that's the most sacred part of you that sort of, hidden uh you know sort of sort of uh depth that uh is the source of your deepest convictions and that kind of thing so and, and it's interesting you say of... that because i see the spectrum of of christians i see that happening at both ends of the spectrum so t typically when i'm sitting with some of my more charismatic friends my response is okay well you know that that sounds and feels really exciting. Uh, just give me three examples from scripture where you see that <laughs> and you can yeah. test your spirit. And then I also see in, in the kind of in the revitalization of the reformed movement or in the re reformational movement, you know, I also see within the young guys this desire to so uh, dig into the sovereignty of God that they're, they're actually 
twisted into this world of not being able to use biblical language, like about faith and uh, repentance. And I'm kind of sitting there going, saying like, you know, I, I, I believe in the sovereignty of God and the, and the election of the saints as well. But, you know, you're, 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 you're moving into this, you know, this scholastic or academic or, uh, you know, philosophical world that I can't find in, in scripture either. And, uh, so we're, we're really bound in these situations to fight this inner Gnosticism, either the kind of the emotional ooey gooey charismatic or the, you know, stoic scholastic, uh, we're trying, you know, we're calling them back to the word. And again, it has significant meaning because when you, when, when you get out of this idea of Jesus is Lord and he is Lord by testing the spirits that spirits are tested by the word and the word applies to, you know, every aspect of the home, you really end up again with these outer, outer rims, these outer worlds where you and I would go, I've heard that before. It's in a movie somewhere. It's in a book somewhere. (laughs) I've seen this somewhere else. Yeah, I guess what I was thinking of when I think of, uh, you know, seeing this movie before, you know, we've seen what's uh, happened to the Episcopal Church. It's um, completely uh, apostate now, as far as I can tell. Um, and it's shrinking. It's dying everywhere. Uh, we see it with the United Methodist Church in the United States. We see it with the PCUSA, you know, the Presbyterian Church, United States of America. And and it's, it's as though um, we can't uh take this as sort of a uh, cautionary tale i mean we we look at these groups and we just don't seem to learn anything and we just kind of recreate uh an, a sort of a, our own particular approach to to going you know uh liberal um i i i i think that every every denomination has its own way of going bad uh, its own sort of and it's usually yeah, related was, to its card, I, that's such a great way cardinal doctrine i so yeah, pre- yeah. i so appreciated you saying that you know we're, we're just kind of figuring out our own new way of going bad yeah <laughs> you know i was part of the wesleyan world for the longest time uh and you know the cardinal doctrine and wesleyanism is love and when you know it that's become the sort of the catch-all that allows anybody to do anything they want within the reform yeah. world it's grace and that's become the catch-all to to, to let anybody do what they want you know, and it just, it, you know, you just kind of go from group, you know, if you, I suppose if I was, uh, you know, in the, in the world of Pentecostalism, it would be the movement of the spirit yeah. and the, just so happens that the spirit's moving us in some really weird ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's other, you know, no matter what group you're talking about, there's some weird way to accommodate ourselves to the spirit of the age. I remember Haddon Robinson did a, did a sermon on the bronze snake in the desert and how uh, the people were to look to the bronze snake uh, as a symbol, of course, to their submission to God, repentance and belief, and they would be healed. And then he brought up you know, a, a text later on that talks about how the, the Israelites later on had, had taken that snake and started to worship it. And then all he did was walk through different examples in history for the rest of the entire sermon. And he would get through the end of the story and he would just say, it's just unbelievable how good snakes can go bad. Mm-hmm. And he would, and I remember the end of the sermon and, and he, and he said, you know, just same thing, man, good snakes go bad. <laughs> and then he walked off stage like, no, no, like specific application, no exhortation. Right. And I ran up to him and I said, you know, I, I said, Dr. Robinson, you know, I was so pleased he was up speaking in our area because he was one of my profs. And I said, Dr. Robinson, why'd you end it like that? Why'd you end the sermon like that? He said, I just didn't need to say two more sentences. I had said my point. And I can still remember to this day that that sermon and how powerful it was because all he did was, you know, exegete the text briefly and then walk through historical examples of how we had done that. Good snakes gone mm-hmm. bad. What a what a great sermon. People, if you, if you want to listen to a good Haddon yeah. Robinson sermon, that's a that's a good one to remind us uh, not to not to take any of our, our endeavors and, 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 and worship them specifically right now, the self, the, you know, self happiness and and and, right. and and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, you know, I think you've heard Chris and I unpack here how that pursuit of the self idolatry is really 
um, hijacking a, a, a godly vision for the home. So, Chris, I want to give you the last word. Any any final thoughts to my listeners? Well, no. I mean, I, I I'm really been pleased to be with you, Michael. And it sounds like uh, from what I've seen and what we've had a chance to talk about that this is a great source of uh, you know encouragement and uh, instruction for folks. And I just uh, hope they continue to uh, take advantage of what you're providing them. Well, thanks, Chris. And share share with people where they can follow you if if they want to, uh, uh, you know. Uh, unpack some of your uh, writing. I know that I, I do actually have one very controversial thing to say. You wrote an entire book on Tom Bombadil. Yeah. Right. right. That's true. I did. Okay. So <laughs> I just, I need to fully disclose, maybe this will be another podcast for us and it's going to be way more combative. But that was like the most boring part. My, my, my third child, my first daughter is currently she just demolished the Hobbit. She is just getting into the Fellowship of the Ring, and she's about to get to Tom Bombadil. And I said, "Sweetheart, just flip to the Prancing Pony. That is like <laughs> the largest waste of literature ever." And you went and wrote an entire book on that section. I can't even believe it. Yeah, it's actually done very well. <laughs> I'm sure it has. So, if you, if, can you come back on and we'll talk about it? Sure, sure. Yeah, but you have to read it first. So, yes, you know, I will. The, there are a lot of things. <laughs> Do I actually have to read things. the portion in the Fellowship of the Ring, or just your book well, about the portion in the Fellowship of the Ring? Well, hopefully both, because uh, one kind of uh, you know is yeah, working I, with the other. Uh, but yeah, I'd be happy to talk about it. that's that's that was a fun project, and um, it's actually uh, being. Uh, reviewed now by i think the uh institute for inkling studies in the uk so i'm, I'm looking forward to seeing you know what they have to say about it but awesome. it was a, it was a lot of fun to write tell people where you can get that book and where they can get your other resources well of course if you just look uh you know for me on amazon i'm easy to find cr wiley but if you want to just if you want to go to the publisher of the a couple of books we've talked about which is canon press you know you can get uh, in the House of Tom Bombadil uh, there, or you can get uh, Household and War for the Cosmos. And then, um, you know, I've got uh, a podcast that I, we, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, just briefly that I, that I uh, you know, work uh, on with a couple of other guys, Tom Price and Glenn Sunshine, uh, the Theology Pugcast. So those are some places to find me. Great. That's awesome. Well, look, everybody, we've been going for about an hour now. And uh, Chris, that's uh, plenty of uh, time to take up of yours. And uh, listeners, I'm sure you are uh, happy to uh, sign off uh, from this episode. I, would you please share this episode? We're, we're, we really need people to re be rethinking deeply about the family. It, it's, a, it's a major problem in our Christianity. And I think that... Uh, Chris and I had some good thoughts here from scripture that you could uh, certainly test us on and uh, share it. Give us a five-star rating. And Chris, thanks so much for being on with me. Yeah, Michael, I was glad to do it. Thanks for asking me. All right, everybody. Godspeed and...